with you again. I've seen some familiar faces, although I don't remember names <laughs> on everyone, but uh, it's uh, great to be here. It's a wonderful privilege to open up God's Word uh, to you, and I hope you are uh, blessed and encouraged. Um, my wife and kids weren't able to make it with me this morning. It's the day before VBS at our church, and my wife is always very intimately involved um, in that, so they're so they're there doing that kind of stuff. Uh, and speaking of my wife, we celebrated our 14th anniversary last week. Yeah, thank you. In the basement of my neighbor's house on Tuesday. Not how we envisioned uh, spending that anniversary, but as my mother-in-law said, well, not everybody remembers their 14th. So um, I guess that's um, some silver lining on those clouds. But thankful also everyone here seems to not have been very affected. Um, it could have been catastrophic. Uh, it's just amazing to think about. So we're thankful for God's hand over us. If you'll turn with me to the uh, letter of First Peter, that's where we're going to be this morning. And I'm going to be reading a few different sections. Um, we're going to. I'm going to read verses one through nine of chapter one, then thirteen through twenty-one, and then jump real quick to chapter three, verse fifteen. So we'll read, and then I'll pray. So this is the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, had, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In chapter 3, verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Father, what amazing and profound words from the Apostle Peter preserved for us through these centuries. And, I, and I'm asking that through these words and through the hope and the promises that they contain, that we would be encouraged to stand fast and to stand firm in our faith, despite whatever it is that we're experiencing personally right now, and whatever it is we're experiencing as your collective people in this nation. We pray that your promises would do the work that only they could do to bring the hope and encouragement of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, in April of 2016, a few years ago, the New York Times ran a front story um, with the headline, U.S. Suicide Rate Surges to a 30-Year High. Now, the article reported that from 1999 to 2014, the overall suicide rate had rose by 24%, with the rise over the last eight years double the annual rise the first seven years. In other words, there was just a compounding effect. Um, various experts, like always, are uh, consulted to figure out what is going on. Um, one attributed the trend to diminishing job and economic prospects, which is very common. Yet, one man, Robert Putnam, professor of public policy at Harvard, uh, was the only expert uh, cited who mentioned the word hopelessness as the root cause. And of all those experts, I think Putnam got to the heart of the matter. Hopelessness. Post-World War II, Americans have become increasingly hopeless in, uh, or we Americans have become increasingly hopeless in our outlook toward the future. I think a quick survey of popular books, uh, TV shows, and movies bears this out. Blockbuster films are filled with end-of-the-world nuclear and environmental disasters, zombie invasions, and other kind of dystopian themes. The quote-unquote high-quality and very popular TV shows, uh, such as Breaking Bad and House of Cards and Mad Men, just to name a few, they're all characterized by anti-heroes, people who embody not the good, but the bad. And this even is showing itself in literature, in contemporary nonfiction, or excuse me, contemporary fiction. Um, modern writers seem to be flummoxed by joy, one writer says. They have decided that despair 
alienation, and bleakness are the most meaningful and interesting descriptors of the human condition. Um, but into this culture of hopelessness, which is what I would describe it as, the words of the Apostle Peter, Peter resound. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The compounding rise of suicide rates um, is just a mere symptom of this overarching hopelessness that our culture seems fascinated by. And I think it, in large part it has to do with the failure of the ideal of progress. Prior to World War I and World War II in particular, there was general hope in the general goodness of humanity. And that if we could just, through education and through other social means, get people on the same page, we'd all be a happy utopian society. But since the horrors of World War II and other fascist dictators, and as we see even today, that general sense of optimism is gone and been replaced by this hopelessness. But Peter's words remind us that the Christian faith is a hope-filled faith, and it gives us hope, and that this hope makes a difference, hence why I entitled this message, The Difference That Hope Makes. And there are three things in particular from the passages that I read, that um, three differences that hope makes, that I want to focus our attention on. And the first is that Christian hope reorients our view of the future. As I said earlier, um, many of popular TV shows are filled with a view of the future that is rather bleak. Um, zombie invasions and apocalyptic nightmares and so on and so forth. But faith in Jesus gives us a different outlook. It orients our view of the future in a different way. Now hope, the central word here, can be defined as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Um, as children, we're constantly filled with such hope. Um, whether it's for a certain toy that we're going to get at Christmas that we so longed for, or a particular trip that we're going to take, um, or whatever. My children recently have been filled with such hope that we will eventually go to the, to the aquatic center, you know, because it's getting close to summer, it's open, and that's the thing that they have been longing for. Um, and that hope was fulfilled yesterday for them. Um, and it's fun to see the general state of, of hopefulness in children. It's, it's, it, as adults, it's one of the things that we look back on and cherish, that innocence we often call it, um, and wish we could oftentimes re-enter into that state yet again because of the excitement. Um, but in this definition, we can see that hope is something that is oriented toward the future. It entails desiring of something that hasn't yet happened. And this is important because we're, by nature, future-oriented beings. Humans, We humans instinctively need to organize 
the sequence of our life experiences into a particular story that is leading somewhere. We cannot bear life by living only in the present, facing one disconnected event after another, pursuing only instant desire. We live with at least an implicit set of beliefs that our lives are building towards some end, some hope to which our actions are contributing. And the passage this morning bears this reality out. Peter here in this letter is constantly reorienting us toward the promised future that is the Christians because of the work that God has done in Jesus and in our lives through Jesus. So he speaks of such things. I'm just going to quote um, some verses. Uh, Verse 4, chapter 1, he speaks of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 7, he talks of the praise and glory and honor that will be made known at the revelation or the coming, second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he talks about obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then verse 13, grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of this is in the future tense. Um, In Scripture, salvation is often talked about in three tenses, the past, the present, and the future. And for Peter, Peter is focusing his reader's attention on the future realities of the Christian faith. Hence, he constantly uses the future tense of verbs. And the approach is clear. He wants us his readers, to lift our gaze from the present situation we're in and fix it on the glorious future that is promised to those who believe. And why? Well, because as he said early on, he said, we've been born again to a living hope. Not a dead hope, but a living hope. And hope is faith in the future tense. Hope and faith are synonymous. The only difference being hope is exclusively future-oriented. So as believers, we should continually fix our minds on this glorious future that God has promised us. It's a natural byproduct of the new birth um, that God has wrought in us um, through through His Spirit through faith in Jesus, and it makes a difference in our present lives. So as Christians, one of the central defining marks for those who believe is a confident, living, future-oriented reality that is not bleak, but is rather promising um, and good and glorious. Now with that, the second thing that Um, difference that hope makes is related. Um, So I could have just contained this into the same point, but I wanted to separate it out and give it its own attention. And that is this future orientation that hope brings um, affects the daily life. Now, oftentimes you probably hear people say, well, you know, if if you're always living in the future, then you're no good in the present. Well, that doesn't have to be the case. In fact, Peter's letter reminds us that properly orient ourselves to the right future, the future that is assured through faith in Jesus, 
has a practical implication for our daily lives. Um, he talks so much here in this letter about reward and promises. Um, and as I said, many people uh, think that doesn't this make us so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good? Is the often is the is the uh, something that some people say? But in fact, it has a powerful effect. Let me illustrate this. So imagine two men who were both recently hired at a, the same factory to do the same job. And they will, be, they will put part A into, into slot B and then hand um, what they have been assembled to someone else. So pretty simple job. They're going to do this over and over for eight hours a day. Now imagine with me as well that they're in identical rooms with identical lighting and temperature and ventilation. They're given the same number of breaks. So there's nothing different between these two um, gentlemen and the job and the environment they work. The only difference is that the one man is told at the end of the year he's going to be paid $30,000. The other one's told that he's going to be paid $30 million. Now, who do you think has more motivation to do his job day in and day out. Well, naturally, the guy who's getting paid more. I mean, that's a basic base um, uh, motivation for us. Why? Well, his expectation of the future is a greater reality than the other person has. And so that's where a being oriented to a future reality that is so glorious we can comp- cannot comprehend can have a dramatic personal effect in our motivation and the way we live here and now. Now, obviously, this is a fictitious uh, scenario. Um, You know, nobody's going to get paid that much to do that kind of work. And there are many other things about about it that would would seem to be rather meaningless work. But still, um, I think the illustration points to this reality, that our expectation of the future, what we're expecting to happen in the future, affects the way we live in the present. That bears that out in the lives of many in culture today who have a very bleak view of what the world is going to be like. And that affects the way that they live now. Now we need to understand that the occasion that brought about Peter to write this letter um, to what he calls the elect exiles in the regions of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, was a that they found themselves in a hostile culture. Um, they were, as Peter says, grieved by many, many various trials. They were rejected by men and insulted for the name of Christ. And so they were living in a culture that wasn't uh, was not friendly to to Christians. And we don't know exactly the nature or the extent of the persecution that they were experiencing, but we know it was real. There was some physical violence, but there was also probably taunting, making fun of, making fun of all those kinds of things that made it a very difficult scenario <clears throat> to live in. And it's that, it's, it's that reality that makes me really love this letter of 1 Peter. Um, throughout the centuries of the church, it has, it has taught, taught Christians well, but I think we have so much more in common now with these Christians um, than other centuries of Christians did. Because we as well live in a hostile culture. We're no longer dominant. Um, we no longer have strong cultural power. The, 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 um, the 
what am I trying to say? The tides have changed. There's been a shift. And so even though we may not experience physical persecution, there are other types of persecution where it's not easy being a faithful, orthodox, um, believing Christian in our society today. And so Peter writes this letter because he knows that those Christians in that context needed a reminder of the assurance of their future inheritance and the reward that they would receive so that they could endure these present hardships and have the motivation needed to remain faithful in their daily lives the same way we need to be reminded. That's why Peter talks and writes to them of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. I mean, just hope-filled words that the, that no matter in the midst of this trial, this suffering, there is something glorious awaiting. And that gives them the motivation they need to endure. Therefore, given this reality, that's why Peter writes down in verse 13, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope on this grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. See, it's at that critical place in which we are enduring some kind of suffering or trial. And um, we may have lost um, a vision and, and uh, uh, an understanding of, of the end to which we're being called. And when we lose that orientation to that inheritance, that uh, promise that is undefiled, we fall victim oftentimes to reverting back to a former way of life because it's easier. It's easier to, to go back to that, as Peter says, former ignorance because it makes us fit in. We don't have to experience the, the persecution because of our faith by doing that. But to counteract that, Peter is, is calling to our attention and to these, re these readers' attention, these, uh, these first Christians, this reality in order to give them the motivation that, that they need to endure. Now, I like to head off objections at the past when I can. Um, and it has often been thought that, well, I mean, I get it, Peter, but this seems to be somewhat an improper motivation. Like, shouldn't we just be faithful and, and holy just because God says so? We shouldn't need some kind of uh, proverbial carrot at the end of the stick to, to motivate us and get us to that end. Well, um, I get that thinking, but this is where the one of the greatest 20th century thinkers, C.S. Lewis, I think, comes to our rescue. And his words, I've I've chewed on for many a year, um, and it's worth quoting at length for us to think about this, because even back in the early 20th century, he was dealing with this kind of objection. That is an improper motivation for Peter or for anybody to to. Um, to remain faithful just because you're going to receive some good. Uh, we call that bribery with our kids, right? <laughs> uh, but this is what he says. He writes, 
If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of a bad of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from earlier philosophers and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, Lewis writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink, ambition, and other vices when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I just absolutely love those words. We are ignorant children who want to go making mud, go on making mud pies in the slum because we don't understand what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Think of those who you may know who continue to live in a way that doesn't promote any kind of holiness or righteousness, but yet they continue to do so. Why? Because they don't understand what is meant by the glorious promise that can be theirs through Jesus. Now, why does Lewis say this? Well, he goes on to say um, and to write why this is the case. He said, we must not be troubled by the unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. In other words, only doing it because we get something in return. He says, there are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desire that ought to accompany those things. And here he gives a couple examples. He says, money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for real love, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. A general who fights well in order to get a promotion is mercenary. A general who fights for victory is not. Victory being the proper reward of battle, as marriage is the proper reward of love. And now listen to this. He says, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. They are the activity itself in consummation. That is what Peter is getting at. It is not wrong or improper or mercenary for Peter to hold out the, the glorious promises and inheritance that are, that are available to those who believe in Jesus as a way of motivating them to endure their suffering. No, it is actually that those rewards are the activity itself of faithfulness that is the consummation. Much like marriage is the reward of love, that is what Peter is getting at. And so to continually lift our gaze from whatever trial or hardship or temptation we're facing in the present to this promised reward is actually a means of grace. It is living by the promises 
of God and those promises empower us to endurance and motivate us to live faithfully in a world that's hostile to our faith when we're tempted to lose hope and revert to our former way of life. All right. Now third. So you see that as Christians in the midst of a hostile culture, hope, hope the, the hope that the gospel brings rightly reorients us to a, to a glorious future which motivates us in the present for faithful living. But then thirdly, it also relates us in a particular way to the culture around us. And that's why I wanted to read verse 15 of chapter 3. Because the final difference that Christian hope makes is that it gives us one of the most powerful apologetics for the Christian faith today. Apologetics being a way of making a defense. As Peter says, he says, always be prepared, in chapter 3, verse 15, to make a defense, an apologia, from which we get the word apologetics, to anyone who asks you for a reason, for what? The hope that is in you. As I mentioned earlier, we live in this culture of hopelessness, as evidence in the literature and blockbuster movies and TV shows. And the author Robert Nisbet in his book, The History of the Idea of Progress, explains how, as I said earlier, in the 19th and 20th century, the older Christian idea of the coming kingdom of God became secularized. In other words, divorced from its biblical underpinnings to the narrative of historical advancement, i.e. progress. Christian theology itself, in some um, more liberal circles, uh, oh, no, excuse me, Christian theology understood history to be linear, sovereignly controlled by God, moving to a particular end, a day of judgment, justice, and etc., and ultimately to the establishment of a peaceable divine kingdom. However, in modern times, this idea has been replaced by the story of progress, as evidenced by the vocabulary that describes good trends as progressive and bad ones as regressive, and some thinkers as ahead of their time. We can see it in many ways. But fortunately, for our sake, this optimism in progress is crumbling before our very eyes. The belief in the perfectibility of human nature through science and education and social policy began to collapse after each of the world wars. And it's become evident that this optimism has been a disaster uh, for the environment and also for the human spirit. It's weakened our ability to face difficulties and suffering, as well as to sacrifice immediate pleasure for a larger purpose. In short, the secular narrative of progress cannot provide an effective antidote to despair. Hence the culture of hopelessness we're experiencing today. This culture of hopelessness that we experience today all around us and we see evidence of is the result of the failure of the secular idea of progress and the perfectibility of the human nature. And this is where the Christian hope comes in. He says, always, Peter says, always be prepared to make this defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
because people are longing for real hope. That's what they want. That actually makes a difference in their lives. And because of that, we, as believers, have a real opportunity, an amazing opportunity, to effectively witness to our culture and show them that the gospel of Jesus Christ meets them at the very point of their need, but gives them something even greater than they could possibly imagine. This is what Tim Keller writes. He says, If Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, if he is really the Son of God and you believe in him, all the things that you long for most desperately will come true at last. We will escape time and death. We will know love without parting, and we will see evil defeated forever. So things that the, that the world, the secular world, is craving. He's, he goes on to write, In fairy stories, especially the best and most loved, most loved and well-told ones, we get a temporary emotional reprieve from the real world in, our, in which our deepest desires are all rebuffed. But if we believe the gospel, Keller writes, we are assured that all those longings will be fulfilled in real time, space, and history. What a message to a culture that is drowning in hopelessness. That's a compelling message that strikes to the heart of people's longings today and applies the balm of the gospel as a remedy. And so that's why I say not only does Christian hope reorient us rightly to the future so we can live faithfully in the present, but it helps us then go out and relate to a world that is just craving hope. So let me wrap it up. Land the plane. What difference does Christian hope make? I've already said it many times, but as I learned in good writing and speaking, you say what you're going to say, you say it, and then you say it again. It's a pretty easy recipe. Christian hope makes all the difference in the world. It helps us understand that there's not a bleak reality that awaits us, but a glorious reality, an inheritance undefiled and beyond our wildest imaginations. And that changes us right here in the present. I don't know what any of you are experiencing today whatever kind of hardships or sufferings. But this reminder of God's promised inheritance is all the fuel and motivation we need to continue to live faithfully and to be found faithful at the revelation of Jesus Christ, his second coming. So whatever, wherever and however you are tempted to fall back into your former ignorance, as Peter says, your former way of life, don't. You'll be like the proverbial kid making mud pies in the slum when you don't understand what is meant by a holiday at sea. God has offered you so much more. So much more. And then thirdly, this hope empowers us to engage a culture that is lost and dying and desperately needs the hope of the gospel. And we have it. So let us be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in us. And let us be, as Peter said, those who are born again to a living hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much 
for your word. We thank you for Jesus and you sending him to die on the cross for us. We thank you that you raised him from the dead. And that has raised us as well to this new and living hope. And so I pray that these promises that you've given us through your word would empower and motivate us in difficult times, whether now or in the future, that we would continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that with this hope that you've given us and these promises, that we would be able to speak the truth of your gospel to those who are desperately longing for the hope that it can give them. And use us, Lord, um, in this way to bear fruit for your harvest that you have sent us out in this world to do. I pray for those here this morning who are struggling. Let this message be an encouragement to their soul. I pray for those who are here who may not know you. I pray, Father, they would have caught a glimpse of the glorious inheritance that could be theirs, and they would make that decision uh, to follow you today. And I pray for all of us who are battle-worn um, on a long journey of faith that um, this could put some pep in our step um, and g give us the encouragement and the motivation we need uh, to endure just a little longer, um, Lord, until you come again. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.